In the late 17th century, as the American colonies began to grow, so did the need for spiritual growth. By the early decades of the 18th century, the lostness, depravity, and overall moral decline was apparent among the colonists. Thus, pastors across the colonies began to call for prayer for revival. One such small group of Moravians in Saxony began to pray in 1727. Committed to what they called a 24-hour prayer watch, this small group of Moravians led by Count Zinzendorf began to pray for revival in the American colonies. What they did was pray. Pray fervently. For over 100 years, this small band of missionaries would pray that God's Spirit would be poured out upon the people of America. And not many years after the Moravians began to pray for the nation's revival, revival began to break out throughout the colonies. The first great awakening occurred in the years of 1730 and 1740. Most attribute that because of the hard prayers and labors of these early settlers who committed themselves to pray not merely for themselves, but for the lostness around them. And over the years, this small group, this small band of followers led by Zinzendorf would send out more than 300 missionaries around the world take the simple message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And this desire to pray for evangelism of the nations and for our own nation, to seek genuine revival among our friends, our family, and our neighbors, is a distinctively Christian instinct. It is the fruit of the gospel in one's life. It is evidence that the person has been born again if they have a fervent desire to see sinners around them come to know Jesus. One of the glorious parts of the gospel that we often overlook is this reality, that God in his sovereign purposes has invited you and I as his followers into his purposes of salvation by inviting us to pray for the lost. One of the greatest privileges we have as Christians is to pray for the lostness of the community around us, to pray for the lost people groups around the world that they might come to know Jesus, that God might open doors and send mouths to declare the glories of Christ. This morning, we want to think about this great privilege. To think about the call that we have to pray and to speak to those around us. Now, it's been a couple weeks since we've looked at this, and as we come to the end of this letter, I want to just kind of give us a little bit of context this morning. Paul has just concluded his instructions to the households, and now he turns his attention back to the wider congregation. Paul has dealt with the gospel and the heart. How we're tempted to other means of sanctification, 
apart from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we've died with Christ, then we've raised with Christ, then we are a new creation in Christ. We can put off the old man and put on the new. Paul has dealt with how the gospel intersects with the home. How the gospel transforms the way a husband loves his wife and a wife loves her husband. The way uh, mom and dad parent their children. The gospel affects the way that we work in the workplace and lead in the marketplace. And now, Paul takes the gospel to the world. And he shows us how, as Christians, we are not called to a holy huddle. We're not called to this little gathering here and that's it. But we're rather called to gather that we might be sent. That we might go to the nations. That we might take the message that we have received and share it with others. Throughout the New Testament, the church is exhorted to pray. Beginning with Jesus and his disciples, as we heard earlier To the apostles in the book of Acts, we see that they prayed regularly and fervently that sinners would be saved for the glory of God in Christ. To Paul's own prayers here in these letters, where he begins each letter with prayer. Or Peter and the other apostles, by their example and their exhortations, prayer is a regular part of God's relationship with his people. And if we do not pray regularly, we will have a diminished relationship with God. If we do not pray regularly, then we will not be a part of God's activity of saving sinners in this world. We will miss out on great things that God is doing if we are not praying regularly among us. One of the truths that God has revealed is that He has created you and I with mouths. To speak. We are not mute beings. We have mouths that we can speak. We have ears that can hear. He has given our mouths as vessels to declare His glory. The Bible also says that sin has distorted it. As James tells the, the early church, he says, with, with out of the same mouth come curse and blessings. This ought not be, he says. Our mouths ought to be used to bring God glory and not ourselves. And so Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he writes to us this morning and exhorts us to use our speech for God's glory alone. I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 4 if you've not done so already. We're going to consider these few verses, verses 2 through 6 this morning. And there is a central theme, and that is speech. Speaking, that is the main theme of this section. Paul begins in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may declare it or make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer 
each person. Well, as we consider what Paul writes here, we could summarize it in this way. As Christians, our speech is just as important as what we think. What we say is just as important as what we believe. You remember when Jesus taught his disciples in the early years of his ministry, he said to his opposition to the religious leaders that were opposing him, he says, out of the heart the mouth speaks. What we think and believe shows up in what we say. And we can figure out really quickly what you believe and what you think by what you talk about. What you value, what you think is important, is what comes out of your mouth, you see. And Paul here is asking us this question, friend, how is your speech? What comes out of your mouth? Does it give glory to God or to self? And so the purpose of our time this morning is to correct our speech both in private and in public. Paul here in this passage addresses two different audiences, doesn't he? There in verses 2 through 4, God is the audience of our speech. There in verses 5 through 6, the outside world is the audience of our speech. Therefore, we see that we ought to speak persistently to God through prayer. There in verses 2 through 4, Paul is commanding us to, to pray in a certain way. Then we see in verses 5 and 6 that we ought to speak wisely to an unbelieving world. We ought to think about what we say to the lost folks around us. So this is the two points I want us to consider this morning. First, pray persistently or speak persistently to the Lord through prayer. Notice here in verses 2 through 4, Paul has a number of ways he describes prayer. Number one, he says, pray continually. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. When he says continue in prayer, it implies that the Christian prays. Notice he doesn't say to the Colossians, hey, you guys need to pray. Remember you need to pray. Remember you need to do that. That's not what he says. He says, continue in prayer. It implies that they already have begun to pray, and prayer ought to continually mark off the Christian life. A Christian who does not pray is not a Christian. A follower of Christ who does not persistently pray is not a faithful follower of Christ. Throughout the Bible, we see various types of prayer found in Scripture. Adoration or praise is a kind, of, a kind of prayer where we praise God for who He is. We might offer up a prayer of confession, confessing our sins to God. Father, forgive me for my unrighteousness, for my rebelliousness. We see in Scripture there are prayers of lament. David, through the Psalms, would often lead the congregation in, in Israel to pray prayers of lament, lamenting their rebellion, lamenting the brokenness of the, their world in which they found themselves. They were often in exile apart from God because of their sin, and they lamented after God, lamented their 
There's often prayers of thanksgiving. Even an example here, Paul says that we ought to pray thankfully with thanksgiving. There's also in the Bible we find prayers of petition. Now this is what we often think of when we think of prayer, that of petition, asking God, petitioning Him. God, will you, will you uh, fill my bank account? God, will you help me get that new house? God, will you help my health be better? Will you help me I stub my toe this morning? This is often what we think of when we think of prayer. But prayer, of course, in the Scripture is much more richer than just merely asking God of things, asking for, for things for our own benefit. Even in our own liturgy this morning, we hope to lead you in various types of prayer. Prayers of praise and confession and petition and thanksgiving to demonstrate to you that prayer ought to be flavored with a variety of ongoing activity. In other words, oftentimes we do not pray continually because we grow bored in prayer. How many of us have been begun praying and then find our minds immediately wandering away or the drudgery of praying for the same things in the same way? Paul here exhorts us to continue, to persevere. Prayer is hard, my friend. Prayer is not easy. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Do you think the enemy wants you to pray? Do you think the enemy wants you to radio up to heaven and get aid for your daily needs? Paul exhorted the church in Rome to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Consistent prayer, my friend, is a posture of the heart. To be continual in prayer, to persevere in prayer, is a posture that recognizes that you are not God, you see. See, we pray little because we think we are big. When you pray a lot is because you think God is big and you are little. To consistently and continually pray is to posture your heart in a way that recognizes apart from God, I can do nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Prayer, my friend, is a relinquishing of control. And it is a turning over of that control to a God who is in control, is acknowledging the reality that God is sovereign and you are not. But notice here we ought to also pray watchfully. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, in prayer. Being watchful in prayer. To stay alert, Paul says. To be constant in readiness. To be on their guard. Prayer is not only a posture of trust, but it is a posture that we are in enemy territory. Prayer is a posture that recognizes we are not with the Lord. The, war, the Lord is far from us, but He can be brought near to us through prayer. It is recognizing that we are behind enemy lines and we need a ready supply of God's provisions. 
This is what we heard Jesus teach his disciples. And what Peter needed so desperately was to watch and pray. But what Peter was fighting so desperately as well was the temptation of the flesh. Even Jesus being tempted in that moment to go his own way rather than God's way for his life. And you'll see in just a split second he says, no, 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 not what I will, Father, but what you will for my life. For no one is immune to moral or theological drift. None of us are. No amount of Bible knowledge, seminary degrees, or pedigree will ever make you immune to drift. This is why we must pray watchfully. What does that look like? Well, it looks first and foremost by recognizing you're not home. You're in a foreign land. This is not your home. You're, you're in someone else's territory. You're in someone else's country. Someone else is running this place. And God is helping you through your journey, and you need his provisions. It recognizes that the devil is out to seek someone to devour, and that someone is you. Do you understand that it pleases the devil more when he can take out one of Jesus's than when he takes out one of his own? What causes greater, greater scandal? That a sinner falls or that a saint falls? Well, of course, to see a pastor, to see a Christian leader fall is a greater scandal to the world around us. And so the enemy is after you, my friend. He wants to see you fall. Therefore, we must be watchful in prayer, knowing that He is out there, knowing that He will seek us, knowing that He will destroy us, but praying that God would protect us. Do you begin your prayer knowing that the enemy is ready to attack you as soon as you pick up your phone in the morning, or as soon as you turn on the TV, or as soon as you talk to a lost person? This is why we must be watchful in our prayer, guarding our hearts and our minds. But thirdly, we see here also in verse 2 that we are to pray thankfully. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now what were they to be thankful for? What was it that Paul had in mind that they were to, to pray thankfully? Well, of course, everything that is called back from what he's thought about. You see, Thankfulness is a powerful stimulus to prayer. When you understand that everything you have is from God, you're thankful. You recognize, I don't have, this is not mine. I didn't produce this. I didn't cause this. This is God's work from beginning to end. He has provided everything in my life. Even the things in my wallet, the thing, the, the, my possessions, these are gifts from God. Therefore, you're thankful that God has provided, and it becomes then a stimulus for prayer, you see. You go back to the one who gave you things. You return back to the one who's provided you richly. But if you think you've made it this far in life in your own strength, well, friend, you're not going to turn to God in prayer. You're not going to rely on God because you don't rely on Him now. It is only when we, re we recognize that everything we have is from God in Christ that will then kindle 
our prayer and ignite us into fervent prayer that is thankful. This is what Paul had earlier taught in Colossians 2, verse 7. Therefore, verse 6, therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in the Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. One who recognizes rightly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ abounds in thanksgiving. They don't need a holiday on the calendar to remind them to be thankful. Friend, are you thankful? Are you thankful for the Lord's kind provisions this week? Don't even look at the totality of your life. Just think back this week. Maybe even this morning. The way God has provided for you. In this simple fact, you woke up this morning, friend. You're alive. You didn't die last night. I know that seems morbid, and I know that seems hard. We don't think often like that, but friend, we ought to pause and slow down and just thank God for the simple things that He gives us every day, from the breath of life to the spiritual power to believe. We ought to be thankful. We see also here in this section that we ought to pray evangelistically. This seems to be the really thrust of where Paul is leading us, to persistently pray evangelistically. At the same time, he says, pray also for us. Paul invites this young little congregation, these these newborn babes in Christ, to pray for the greatest missionary effort the world has ever seen. He says, I want you to pray for us. Now by the context of this verse, we know that Paul is currently in prison, most likely in Rome. He's jailed. He's in a cold dungeon. As we'll learn next week, everyone has left him. He's all alone. Only Luke is with him. And as he writes this letter, he invites them, extends an invitation to this congregation. He says, I want you to pray for us. But I don't mean for my physical needs. Notice here what Paul doesn't pray for. He doesn't say, pray that these chains might be loosed. Pray that I might warm my toes off. They feel like they're about to fall off. Uh, Pray for my physical comfort. You know, I had a bad visit at the doctor this week here at the prison. No. He prays this prayer. Look at it there in verse 3. That God may open to us a door for the word. That God may open a door for us for the Word. Here Paul is asking for a prayer of petition, a prayer of request. He's asking for this congregation to intercede on their behalf. They were to be intercessors for Paul. They were a part of Paul's missionary efforts. Though they were thousands of miles away, though they, would, they never met the Apostle Paul, he had never been to that church before, they were just as important to Paul's missionary efforts as those who were there with him. He was inviting them to gospel ministry, inviting them to participate in what God was doing among those around him. 
And implied in this verse is that God is the one who opens doors and God is the one who closes doors. And what God does, God does sovereignly for His glory. And what God does is invites us to participate in His redemptive purposes through prayer. You know, in Paul's missionary journeys, there was a time when he went to Macedonia there was a time when he went to Colossae, there was a, or, or rather Corinth. There was a time when he went to Ephesus because God opened doors for him. And there was a time when God said, no, I don't want you to go there. And you might think, well, my goodness gracious, God didn't want to see those people come to know Christ. God didn't want those people to be saved. Not at all. If you'll just pay attention and read later, God would use those churches that Paul started throughout the Lucian Valley, that God started in Ephesus, that then started Colossae, that then started all of these other churches. And you know what those churches did? They then took the gospel to those places God said no to Paul to. God is inviting you and I to participate in the gospel work by praying that doors may be opened for the word. Friend, when is the last time you prayed for an opportunity for the word to be opened to those around you? Praying that God would open hearts and minds to receive the gospel. Oh, this world is too far gone. These folks are so sinful. They're so wicked. Look at all the things. They're a perverse culture. They, they're far from God. Friends, so are you. But he opened up the opportunity that night or that day when you heard the word and believed. God is inviting you and I to pray for open doors of ministry opportunities for the Word to flourish. To declare, as Paul goes on to say, the mysteries of Christ. This is just another word for the Gospel. This is why he goes on to say, that's why I'm in prison. He's in prison not because he's done something wrong, but because of the Gospel. And notice here, though the Romans sought to imprison Paul, all it did was spread the gospel further and further. And, and friend, let me just invite you to read the story of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. And the story of Christianity is this, is when the word is tamped down, when Christians are imprisoned, when they are silenced, then the, the word spreads. God uses the sufferings of his people to bring about the revival of his people. But notice here also, Paul invites them to pray for willing mouths to proclaim the gospel. It's one thing to have an open door of opportunity, but to not step through the door. It's one thing to have the doors wide open, but nobody actually ever comes into the door. No one's ever invited to come in, come in and feast with Christ. And so Paul prays, verse 4, that I may make it clear as I ought to speak. That I make it, make it clear. That I may make it understandable. That I might proclaim the gospel clearly, compellingly. And notice what he says there, which is how I ought to speak. As I said earlier, there's no Christian who doesn't pray. 
there's also no Christian who doesn't share the gospel. If evangelism is not a part of your regular life, if sharing the gospel with those around you, friend, I'm concerned for your soul. I am genuinely concerned for your soul. Because the Apostle Paul and Jesus, whom he followed, declared this reality that he sends us as ambassadors, as messengers of reconciliation, as evangelistic messengers. And we can thank God for wonderful evangelists in this world today, but each and every one of us are evangelists. And so we ought to pray for mouths to be opened to declare the glories of Christ. Pray for an open opportunity, but pray that our mouths might be loose, that we might share the wonders of Christ. We began our service this morning with a very well-known hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Charles Wesley singing this song, or writing this song, it in reflecting on, on the gospel and the glories of God in Christ as John and, and Charles had a wonderful ministry uh, throughout England. The reality was, as they thought about the gospel, they said this, Oh, if I had 1,000 tongues, a thousand of them, I would use each and every one of them to do one thing, and that is to declare the glory of God in Christ, which is how I ought to speak. Christians are to pray regularly and persistently for the opportunities for the gospel, not only to be shared here in our own context, but around the world. It is our privilege, brothers and sisters, to participate in global missions by praying for missionaries, by praying for the evangelistic efforts of those around us. As we hear about our fellow congregants, we hear about the members of our congregation and their evangelistic work, we want to pray for that and commend it. Whether it be a parent sharing the gospel with a child, whether it be a worker sharing it with a co-worker or a neighbor to neighbor, we want to pray that God would open up these opportunities for his glory. Not only do we to speak to God, but we see here in verses 5 and 6, we are to speak wisely to an unbelieving world. Friend, as Christians, our lives are like a billboard advertisement for what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it is. Part of following Jesus is this modeling aspect. I follow Jesus and you follow me. How I follow Jesus is how you'll follow Jesus. This is how it works. And because our lives are this constant advertisement to the world around us, and in light of the context of evangelism and gospel work, we must watch our lives and guard our speech. Lest we become a barrier to the gospel for those around us. The way we live and the way we speak ought to commend the gospel, not repel people from the gospel. This is what Paul writes here in verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Paul tells them to walk. The word walk there is, is 
customary? That is, how do you characterize their life? What's the conduct of one's life? How do they behave? To, to walk in wisdom is to think that we are strangers in this world. That the, this unbelieving world is watching us. Watching how we behave, how we act, what we do. And he tells them here to walk in wisdom. That is, wisdom being the capacity to know and understand how to live. It is the application of knowledge. That's what wisdom, biblical wisdom, is the application of knowledge. In other words, it's practical wisdom. It's everyday life. We ought to think about our lives and compare them with how does it commend the gospel? Does my behavior commend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And notice what he says here. Toward outsiders. This preposition conveys the idea of relationship. These are not merely individuals that one passes on the street, but those whom we have an intentional relationship with. In other words, we're living among lost people intentionally. We are surrounding ourselves with sinners in order to show them a better way to live for the glory of God in Christ. This implication means then that Christians ought to have intentional relationships with non-Christians in order to commend the gospel to them. To pursue relationships with lost that you might commend the gospel with your mouth. If all you do is hang around people who know Jesus, how are you evangelistic? How can you share the gospel with the lost when all you do is hang around people who know Jesus? That's not what Jesus did. You know, we've created this culture in Southern Baptist life. I remember it as a young teenager when we were shunned if we had, you know, sinners as friends. Oh, you can't hang around them bad people. They're going to make you bad. And we wonder why we've lost the evangelistic zeal as a denomination when we've taught young people for generation after generation that what you need to do is get away from sinners rather than take the gospel to sinners that has won you. The posture of the, of, of the life of the believer isn't that we run from a lost and dying world, but that we run to the lost and dying world. That we take this wonderful message to them that has saved us. This is what Paul means when he says, make the best use of the time. Now, of course, we don't want to have lost friends so that we might enjoy in their debauchery, but that we might use the time wisely. The best use of our time is, of course, evangelizing them, helping them know the one true and living God. Christians are to use every opportunity given to them to share the gospel with those whom they have a relationship. Do you recognize in this group, in this congregation, there are in each individual Christian here represented people that don't intersect? That is, you have people in your life whom no one else in this room will ever touch. 
It, it might be a coworker. It might be someone who frequents your business. It might be a student in your classroom. It might be a child that you know or a neighbor that you live next to. No one else here will ever, you are the vessel of reconciliation. You are the vessel that God has chosen, you sovereignly placed in that classroom, in that neighborhood, in that storefront to be a message, a messenger of reconciliation. And we want to talk about the sovereignty of God all the time. We want to say, oh, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. Well, then, friend, believe it and act like it. If God is sovereign over the nations and he's sovereign in salvation, then he's sovereignly placed you in the particular place you are in right now so that you'll open your mouth and share the gospel with a person who's lost around you. And therefore, we see in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Not only are we to guard our lives, we ought to guard our mouths. Our mouths must be filled with salty speech. Notice what he says, gracious words. Gracious words. To, be, to, to speak graciously, is to have a winning quality or an attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction. That's what it means to be gracious. It's like, I actually want to listen to this person. Friend, do people want to listen to you when you talk? Or are, are you just so bitter and always tearing people down, always bad-mouthing those around? Man, those church folks, at church, man, you, man, this one church member, let me tell you about them. Why would anybody want to follow Jesus if that's how Christians behave? Our speech ought to be gracious because our God is gracious to us. We ought to have a winning quality the way we speak to the lost around us. Winsomely. You notice the language he hears, uses is seasoned with salt. What, what do we use salt to season? Why, why, do we salt, why do we salt meat? To make it flavorful. To bring out flavor, to take out the, to draw out the, the wonder of whatever we're consuming. It's not bland. It, it, it kind of brings it to life. It, it's 4K. It's 3D. It's, it's wonderful on our palates. Our words ought to be used in such a way as to bring about the winsomeness of the gospel. We ought to think about how we can flavor up the glories of Christ. In other words, not that we need to add anything to the glory of Christ, but rather point out how good it is. Does our speech commend the gospel? Would someone want to follow Jesus after listening to you for like five minutes? Are you so angry and bittered and, and frustrated? Are so anxiety-driven that someone would say, man, that's the God I want to follow. Our speech must be winsome. Jesus taught his disciples that salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be salty again? He says, have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. We ought to have a preserving nature among our speech. Salty speech is preserving Notice here he concludes by saying, so that purpose, with this purpose, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
One of the biggest fears I always hear from Christians when it comes to evangelism is, what do I do when someone asks me that big question I don't know how to answer? Well, notice here what Paul says. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That is, that you would have answers that are tailored to the individual you are sharing the gospel with. This implies that those you communicate the gospel with will have questions. There is not a one-size-fits-all to sharing the gospel. And sometimes fear disables us from, from evangelizing. And let me just help you out right now with that question. What do I do if someone asks me a question I don't know? Here's what you do. Now listen up. You tell them this. I don't know. I know, right? It's deep. You see, we want to run around and be Bible answer men and women. But the gospel is that we don't have the answers. The gospel is Jesus is the answer, not us. And so when we come with a posture of pride, oh yes, I know the answer to life's most difficult questions then you're not coming with humility that the gospel ought to generate in you. Friend, it is okay that you do not know the answer. There are, there are questions I don't know the answer to. And friend, one day I will know it when I see Jesus. The Bible says that we look through a glass dimly lit. That means we don't see clearly as things ought to be, but one day we will see him as he is. For we will be with him and we will be as he is. We will be perfect. So don't allow the, the proverbial question to disable you in evangelism. Just say, hey, I don't know the answer to that, but here's what. I want you and I to work together to find the answer. And I know where the answer is, and I'm going to go back and look for it. Don't allow that to shut down your evangelism. Paul tells us here that our speech ought to be tailored not to merely make the gospel fit, but rather to communicate it in a way that is winsome in order to win people over to Jesus. Peter says it this way, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Christians, we ought to be evangelistic in our efforts. Our speech must be gracious, wise, and winsome, and tailored to the individual we seek to share the gospel with. It matters not only what we say about Christ, but how we say it for His glory. As Jesus, one afternoon, was sending out His disciples, He had been preparing them for their first mission. He had been teaching them, he had been doing miracles in their life, he had been displaying the gospel and his power before them, and one day he said to his disciples, I'm going to send you on your very first evangelistic mission. And as he readied the apostles to send them out, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
Jesus is about to send out 72 disciples, and he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know, so often in the life of the church, we complain about declining and plateaued numbers. We say, man, we're not as big as we once were. We're, We don't have as many, many members, as many children. We don't have what we once had. And churches have one of two options. They can begin to dig in and look backwards and grow nostalgic and think about how wonderful things once were and look at pictures when the sanctuaries were full. Or they could say this, we're going to pray to the Lord of the harvest. It's not our harvest. It's the Lord's harvest. And we can get out into the fields and harvest the lost and dying world that is before us. We must not merely affirm this truth we have thought this morning and then go about our lives. We must pray earnestly for the lost and dying world around us and then we must go and take this message winsomely to the lost around us and the harvest will come, my friend, because it's the Lord's harvest and not our own. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we would see revival among us. Not that we might impress others with our attendance or our baptism, but that so that you would get the glory. Our desire is that we would pray in such a way fervently persistently, thankfully, that sinners would come to know Jesus. Lord, you are the Lord of the harvest. Send out your workers, I pray. I pray for open doors of opportunity this week for these members. I pray that their mouths would be quick to share about the hope they have in Christ and that many would come to know you through their faithful evangelism. Let us live our lives guarded, winsomely, with salty speech and guarded hearts, calling sinners to the Savior for your glory and our good.